Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Isabella Weber, talking about her new book, How China Escaped Shock Therapy. Shock therapy is a term that was applied to both Latin American and Soviet-style economies in the 1980s. Although the starting positions of those two regions were quite different, in both cases it meant dismantling state supports, letting prices float freely, and opening up to foreign trade and capital flows, all in the name of achieving the perfect market economy of neoliberal dreams. It didn't work very well. Latin America experienced what was later called a lost decade, one of depression and mass unemployment, and the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe endured a profound economic collapse that took years to recover from. China also underwent radical economic reforms beginning in the late 1970s, but it avoided economic collapse. Why? Here with some answers is Isabella Weber, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate, just out from Routledge. It's a review of the internal Chinese debate about how to reform the economy that saw partisans of shock facing down partisans of gradualism. Pre-revolutionary China was very poor. The Maoist Revolution did reduce poverty and improve many social statistics dramatically in the decades after the revolution. It's easy to dismiss the achievements in the Mao years, and there were plenty of nasty disruptions during those decades. But there were some major achievements. Despite those, China remained quite poor, and the task after Mao's death in 1976 was to do something about that. A couple of points to orient non-experts. Economists see the price system as crucial to guiding production. For example, items in short supply will rise in price. In theory, this will draw capital into the sector, increasing production, and thereby relieving the shortage, allowing prices to recede to something like normal. The reverse will happen with items in oversupply. The structure of prices throughout the economy... How much, say, a gallon of gas costs compared to a Big Mac is known as the system of relative prices. While there's more than a little truth to this model, free market economists treat the system of relative prices with quasi-religious fervor as the key to efficiency. To those free marketeers, the goal of transforming old Soviet-style economies into normal capitalist economies meant getting prices right as quickly as possible. As we'll hear, China resisted this advice, and the greatest extended episode of economic growth in world history was the payoff. Yes, I know there was and still is a lot of brutality involved in the Chinese economic system, but there's also a lot to be learned from the experience. Here's Isabella Weber with more. Let's just start with a few definitions. Shock therapy. What is it and how is it related to neoliberalism, a word that's often used uh, with not much definition or precision? So narrowly conceived, shock therapy is a policy package um, that was meant to achieve the transition from a plant economy to a market economy or from socialism to free market capitalism, where the idea was that one would have to shock the system from an old equilibrium into a new kind of equilibrium. And this was meant to be achieved um, with a combination of overnight price liberalizations, macroeconomic austerity, and then followed up with privatization and uh, trade liberalization was acknowledged by the even most hardcore shock therapists that privatization would be a slow and complicated process of institution building, so that the shocking element in shock therapy was really a big bang in price liberalization that was meant to be achieved more or less overnight. What does this have to do with neoliberalism? Well, the idea of um, focusing on free prices as free moving prices as the market is a quintessentially neoliberal idea, um, as is, of course, the idea that private property would be um, an essential precondition for such a market economy to then um, work properly. On a somewhat deeper level, the shock therapy idea is based on a presumption that um, the plan and the state would have to withdraw from the economy in order to make space um, for the market. So in that sense, um, it is um, based on an idea of, of a strict separation between state and market rather than some sort of hybrid forms of organization. 
Now, one of the uh, standard critiques uh, coming from the free market types of um, old planned economies, socialist planned economies, is that they got prices all wrong. And that was one of the problems, the, the fundamental pathologies of that economic model. How did they get prices wrong? What was the, what was the detail of the pathology? I think there are two levels to this question. On the one hand, uh, von Mises, of course, in his critique in the socialist calculation debate, basically suggests that a planned economy could never get prices right, in the sense that it's impossible to construct an objective standard of value in a centrally planned, what he would call collectivist economy. So therefore, there's no way to get prices right, because there's no way of knowing what the right prices would be. On a more practical level, under the planned economy in the Chinese context, prices were quite consciously set in a way to be redistributive mechanisms so that the prices in some sectors or for some commodities would consciously be set below costs and in, in other sectors would be consciously set above costs so that um, you would get a cross-sector redistribution as a result of how prices were set up. So in that sense, the whole point of the price system was not to create prices that were reflecting some sort of individual values of specific commodities, but rather it was thought of as a redistributive mechanism. Now, in the 30s Soviet Union, under Stalin and also in early Maoist China, uh, part of this uh, price setting uh, involved squeezing the peasants to fund industrialization, right? Yes, that was also the case under Mao. Um, as I'm I have a whole chapter on that in the book. The basic idea was that by setting the prices for agricultural goods low relative to the prices for urban industrial goods, one would get a redistribution from the countryside into the urban industrial economy, basically through a systemically unequal exchange. This is the famous price scissors between agricultural goods and urban industrial goods. And the Chinese uh, in their early post-revolutionary years were consciously following the Stalinist model? As regards squeezing the peasants, yes. Mao, of course, in his famous speech uh, on 10 major relationships, um, was pointing out that it would be desirable to start from a development model um, that would emphasize the progress in agriculture and light industry, and then on that basis would move into building up heavy industries. But in the end, um, the model that China predominantly pursued was one that prioritized the building up of heavy industries, and that was um, conditioned on a net transfer from the countryside into the urban industrial economy. So that basically the problem of industrialization, that is, how do you find uh, resources to build up industries that don't immediately produce consumption goods for the people, was solved by basically making the majority of peasants pay for that. You have a fascinating chapter reviewing some ancient, what, 28th century old <laughs> literature, Guanzi, is that the proper pronunciation? Guanzi, yeah. And uh, these concepts of light and heavy, salt and iron, the concept of fiscal management, which from seven centuries BC um, really still had echoes into the Chinese present. Um, so describe the text What was and some what were the highlights of it? So this is a text um, that was composed more as a manual for good governance um, than anything else. We don't know who precisely was the author of that text. It, it's fairly clear that it must have been a collective of um, different people um, writing that text. And it's set um, in the Warring State period, where the idea is that an advisor called Guangzhong um, advises a duke, a ruler, um, on questions of fiscal management, price stability, and also how to generate resources for warfare. So how to make the, the country wealthy and powerful in order to, to be able to compete in the boring state competition between different states. Now, certain basic principles of economic management are emerging from this dialogue um, form text that I think resonate to some degree throughout Chinese history, but that are also fiercely contested throughout um, Chinese history and debated in various rounds of intense controversies. And I find it important to um, stress that second part, since my point is not to suggest that there's some sort of essentialist Chinese economic management that has been 
the same all along from ancient time, but rather that China has a tradition um, of its own of thinking and practicing state market relations, but also has its own tradition of controversies over these precise questions. What I find important about the Guanzi is that on the one hand, it is a way of thinking about the state and the market that is not based on a separation between the state and the market. Rather, the state is meant to participate in the market and through its participation in the market as a buyer and supplier is meant to shape and steer and stabilize the market. So in that sense, the state is inside of the market and the market is inside of the state so that those two don't become um, completely separate um, entities, but rather are mutually constitutive. Um, a second important idea from the Guanzi that I'm using throughout the book is that idea of heavy and light that you've mentioned, um, which is um, basically a conception of weighing the importance of different um, rearms of the economy, where heavy stands for important or consequential and light for unimportant or inconsequential. And the idea is that the state should um, focus its efforts on controlling or guiding or managing the heavy. And by controlling, guiding or managing the heavy, it would um, by implication also guide the light and therefore steer the economy as a whole in a more effective way. What is heavy, I think, has become quite uh, obvious to us since the outbreak of COVID, where suddenly everybody started talking about essential and core sectors and systemically significant and so on. So it's exactly these kind of key um, rearms of the economy that are essential to the working of the system as a whole that the Guanzi is referring to with this metaphor of heavy in relation to light. One of the concepts in that text that uh, resonate uh, in recent decades uh, in the reform debate is um, the use of the market, the state's relation to the market. It seems that the idea is to domesticate market forces um, and to um, guide, but not crush them or surrender to them as if they're almighty wisdom, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is like, like a gardener is uh, trying to nourish certain plants. Um, the gardener has to know what the plants need and how the plants grow and all of that, right? But uh, the gardener is trying to trim them in a certain way and is trying to get rid of things that the gardener is perceiving of as, as weeds and all of that, right? So you have to understand how the natural forces or quote-unquote natural forces of the market work, but then you channel them and you use them for your own purposes rather than assuming that by simply letting the garden grow on its own, it will grow into the most beautiful shapes. I'm speaking with Isabella Weber, author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, published by Routledge. Okay, another historical, a much more recent historical chapter uh, is about the U.S. wartime experience of price controls, which uh, the Chinese embarking on reform studied. What was the crucial features of, of that, uh, that experience of price controls in the U.S., and what did the Chinese take from that? I have that chapter there for two reasons. On the one hand, there are repeated references to the transition after World War II from the war economy to the market economy in the American context, but also in the context of other European countries and, and the UK. The second reason for having that chapter there is that under conditions of wartime, as uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, who was, of course, one of the key economists in the United States um, in charge of prices um, at the Office of Price Control, um, put it after the war. During wartime, economists are willing to give up on their orthodoxies and simply um, are oriented towards trying to work out what actually works, um, as opposed to what textbooks would teach us. So we have this radical pragmatic rethinking of economics during the war. And I think that this is um, an important intellectual reference point um, for the kind of radical, pragmatic rethinking of how to do economics in, in China in the 1980s. More specifically, after the war, the question was how to deal with uh, a transition from an economy where prices were basically universally controlled in the context of the United States, but also the UK and Germany towards 
more market-based economy, which was a problem that is to some degree in parallel with the challenge of um, transitioning from a plant to a more market-based economy in the context of the transformations of socialism. So therefore, this became an important um, reference point, not only in the Chinese context, but also, uh, for example, in, in the German context, where, of course, particularly the West German Erhard Miracle became an important metaphor, but this was a metaphor that was not limited to Germany at all. Milton Friedman invoked it in the Chilean context and also in the UK context. The reference to the Second World War and its transitions is one that I'm not inventing, but that I, where I am taking the lead from the sources that I have consulted. Now, there were basically two um, approaches to go about um, this transition from the war economy. The first was the one that is encapsulated um, in Erhard's price reform as the most famous example, where the idea was to basically liberalize prices as quickly as possible um, and impose um, strict macroeconomic austerity. In the German case, um, that came, of course, along with the currency reform where um, savings uh, were canceled and, and, and as such, um, the monetary incomes or the, the, the availability of money incomes um, amongst the masses of people were strictly limited before the price reform. Nevertheless, the, this basic idea of combining rapid price liberalization with macroeconomic austerity is basically the same idea as the Big Bang in shock therapy that re-emerges as a central policy tenet in the 1980s. In contrast, there were um, ideas for a more gradual transition that were advocated, for example, in the United States in a letter um, to the New York Times in 1946 by some of, of the most uh, famous American economists of the 20th century, including people like Irving Fisher, Paul Samuelson, but also Paul Sweezy. And, and yeah, I was surprised to see his name on that list. Yeah, so there was really a, a, a very broad ideological coalition of economists that were warning that if one was to liberalize prices more or less overnight, that what would happen would be that the prices of goods that were in short supply would be shooting up. But since the challenge in the transition back to a peace economy was one that involved a structural readjustment where production itself had to be shifted back from what it had become during the war back to the needs of peacetime. So um, therefore, it would take time for factories to switch back to their initial or new um, production lines. So there was a stickiness involved. There was what we would call in economics an inelasticity of supply, so that if you would let prices free, they would shoot up, but they would not, um, in the short term, increase um, supply sufficiently in order for supply and demand to get back roughly into balance. So what would happen would be that the producers of these goods would be reaping windfall profits without, however, um, necessarily being able to adjust supply any faster than they would be doing if they were anticipating future price rises after some future price liberalizations. Anyway, so the idea was that one should be liberalizing prices step by step and let go of price controls whenever a specific sector was um, moving back into a less disproportionate relationship between supply and demand or whenever shortages in a specific um, sector were starting um, to ease. This is something that should sound very familiar to us. Um, some of you might have uh, followed the um, explosion of lumber prices in, in 2021, which was basically a result of um, last year's shutdown of, um, of sawmills and, and, and reduction in, in production of lumber, and then um, a very rapid increase in demand for lumber because everybody was doing their do-it-yourself projects and uh, renovating their houses and so on. So that you got this uh, sudden stark disproportionality between supply and demand in one specific important um, sector. Now, this enormous increase in prices was arguably not necessary for the lumber industry to pick up again and to raise supply, but it enabled, of course, the lumber industry to reap windfall profits out of this situation of crisis. 
Inflation was an important question uh, in China because one of the reasons the revolution succeeded, right, was that the nationalist government was unable, unable to control wartime inflation. What was the, uh, the effect of that wartime inflation on uh, the revolutionary transformation of China? Whereas in the United States, uh, the general price freeze had worked pretty well. And in fact, um, Leon Hendershot, who was the director of the Office of Price Administration, was also brought to China by the nationalist government um, as an advisor. And the nationalists were trying to impose a similar price freeze. It did not work in the Chinese context because as a result of the civil war, the economy had so um, fundamentally disintegrated that simply fixing prices um, did not work. And uh, as a result, the repeated attempts at price fixes basically were unable to um, overcome hyperinflation. On the other hand, the communists uh, reverted back to strategies which they came to call um, economic warfare, that were strategies of using state commercial agencies to reintegrate markets so that the currency that the um, communists were issuing in their base areas um, would be able to actually buy important goods such as cotton, grain, salt, and so on. And by making sure that there were um, important goods to be exchanged against their currency, their currency gained a value since it had a real value in exchange. And as a result, they managed to stabilize the acceptability of their currencies gradually across um, base areas. So this was incredibly important in building the foundation for the, the economic foundation for the liberation struggles. Now, in 49, um, after the revolution, the um, hyperinflation was uh, contained in some areas, but it was still a big, big problem. Um, and basically what the communists did was that they used techniques of out-speculating the speculators where they would be pulling in certain goods on which there were speculative hikes. For example, cotton cloth, where let's say the price was hiked up by private speculators. And then the state commercial agencies would flood specific markets, for example, famously in Shanghai, um, with a um, very high supply of cotton cloth that they were pulling together from across China, so that the prices suddenly started to fall. And um, as a result of this, this reversal in the price hike, speculators would start to panic. Um, and as they started to panic, everybody would start to try to sell. And as they all tried to sell, the price would be falling ever faster, um, so that eventually a whole um, range of speculators would be going bankrupt and would then be taken over by the state. Elaborating on this in such detail for two reasons. The first is that overcoming hyperinflation was incredibly important in creating economic legitimacy um, for the new communist government. And the second reason is to show that um, this first generation of revolutionary leaders were incredibly skillful in paying the market for their own political purposes. And I think that this kind of sense of using the market as a tool and playing the market on its own terms in order to achieve certain political goals is a logic that then um, re-emerges in the 1980s. It's interesting that they achieved, uh, they, they overcame inflation, not through monetary means a la Milton Friedman, but by actually trading in commodities, uh, you know, dealing with the real sectors, we, we would say now. Yeah. Um, so, and this is again, I think, actually, interestingly, um, incredibly timely. We tend to think about inflation in predominantly monetary terms, which really is a result of of the monetarist revolution um, in economic thinking, where we think about inflation mainly in terms of the monetary market itself. Um, now, this is a way of that, that I've just described, the, the one that emerges from these uh, Chinese civil war struggles, is a way of thinking about inflation, not from the perspective of the money market in, on its own terms, but from the perspective of how the value of money relates to the value of important goods. And this goes back to this whole idea of heavy and light, um, but also basically how, how the value of money must be realized in practice by the ability of money to buy important stuff. Now, this ability to buy important stuff is not simply an abstract conception, but in the context of civil war is really 
um, also about actually physically reintegrating trading routes and making sure that there are market links where goods are actually being transported and, and supplied. That was the first part of my interview with Isabella Weber, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate, just out from Routledge. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of To Hell with Poverty by the Gang of Four, released 40 years ago on July 3rd, and digitized from my vintage 12-inch. Between the band name and the anniversary, I couldn't resist. And now part two of my interview with Isabella Weber, author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, published by Routledge. On to um, more recent uh, uh, history. For the first couple of decades uh, after the revolution, Maoist China Log some successes, uh, although there were many bumps along the way. But uh, they had managed to reduce poverty considerably. Even the World Bank was impressed by some of the economic record. But uh, Mao died in 1976, along with uh, several other of his revolutionary comrades. There was a real changing of the guard underway. Everyone agreed that something had to be done, that the, that, that the economy could not be left in its, uh, the state it was received in. But uh, what were the options facing China? What, what were the, the problems that they thought were prominent and what were the various thoughts about how to deal with them? By the 1970s, the Cultural Revolution was pretty much over. And after Mao's death in 1976, there was really a sharp push against the, the Cultural Revolution, the Gang of Force being arrested and all of that. So the ideas of late Maoism are really um, as dead as they could have been. Mao's designated heir, Hua Guofeng, then starts a new push towards a big push type of um, industrialization. This time, this was meant to be fueled by foreign technology and financed by exports of petroleum, which is a, an attempt at um, pushing ahead with the socialist economy that was not at all unique to China, but that was an, an, an approach that was also pursued in, in the Eastern European context and that often resulted in, in, in very um, deep foreign indebtedness. In China, too, as Branko Milanovic has been pointing out in a recent blog post, um, in that sense, there's a parallel between China and, and several Eastern European cases. In China, too, this almost led into foreign indebtedness when the petroleum findings that were projected did not end up forthcoming. So that um, while there was a realization as a result of, um, of Hua Guofeng's initiative to open up to the Western world in pursuit of technology, many delegations were traveling around the world. Um, so there was a realization just how backward, um, in, in their own words, using the term backward, um, China had been in the late 1970s, whereas um, there was no sign of revolution at all in, in the capitalist Western countries. So that the whole question of how to catch up economically and how to overcome the continued um, massive challenge of um, solving the basic problems of feeding and clothing the masses well 
um, became really uh, the, the the most pressing um, point on the agenda of of the of the Deng Xiaoping leadership that then takes over in 1978. And uh, early in the reform period, early 1980s, there were cons- consultations with World Bank economists, Eastern European economists. What kind of advice do they proffer, and uh, how are they received in China? So as China is trying to come up with a new economic model. It is fairly clear early on that more markets should be involved, but also that China should be serving and understanding the experiences of a whole range of countries. In this context, the World Bank comes into the story and becomes an important agent in facilitating exchanges between Eastern European immigrant economists mainly, and Chinese economists who are all trying to think about how to go about economic reform. Some of the people who are visiting China in, in, in around that time are, for example, Bruce, um, who is a, a Polish um, economist who used to work with Oskar Lange, is by then um, exiled in, in Oxford, and Otto Schick, who was the um, architect of the economic program of the Prague, Prague Spring and is by then exiled in St. Gallen in, in, in Switzerland. Um, so there's a, a whole range of, of other people as well, but they, these are basically economists who used to be deeply involved in the reform debates in Eastern Europe and by then have been removed from their home countries and from the debates in their home countries and are, generally speaking, um, fairly um, disillusioned with the attempts at reform in the Eastern European context, where they basically perceive the steps that have been taken that were attempted to be pursued gradually as largely a failure, so that they argue that China, as long as it has momentum for economic reform, should not get stuck um, with tinkering around um, with its existing system, but should instead analyze the starting point and come up with a target model that they want to pursue, and then move towards this target model in a more or less planned fashion in some big steps as fast as possible. Whereas the liberalization of prices is a core element in moving towards this perceived theoretically derived um, target model. So in that regard, uh, you get an analytical theoretical parallel with what later came to be called um, shock therapy, and in particular with the Big Bang. In Russia and Eastern Europe uh, in the 1990s, uh, the faculty of Harvard University was all over the country, um, <laughs> or the region proffering advice. Did you, was anything analogous um, with uh, Amer- American experts offering free market wisdom uh, in China? Well, um, Milton Friedman, of course, visited China early on, and there was a whole range of um, delegations coming through China, um, uh, often involving the American Economic Association, the Ford Foundation, and so on. But I think um, there is an important difference in the sense that um, the Chinese Communist Party was, of course, uh, fully in power and uh, uh, dedicated to staying in power, so that the, 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 the ways in which these exchanges happened, I think, were quite different. As, as one of the World Bank people um, in, in one of my interviews was saying, um, the World Bank and the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party, were marriage made in heaven, two gigantic bureaucratic organizations, highly professional, um, even though they were ideologically very different. They were cooperating, but always at arm's length, where everybody knew this is us and this is you. So that there was a very clear distinction between this is the World Bank, this is the World Bank studies, we are consulting them, we are considering them, but we take them as what the World Bank's view is and not necessarily the view of the Chinese party, let alone the, the, the Chinese leadership. Yeah, unlike the Latin American debtors in the 1980s, uh, who were in subordinate relations uh, with the World Bank, the IMF, uh, China was really free to take or not take uh, the World Bank's advice. Yes, yeah. So the World Bank initially came in with their first uh, first uh, surveys uh, for the first World Bank report um, to assess whether China was eligible for the IDA loans, the International Development Assistance loans of the World Bank. And it did eventually um, take on some loans, but these loans were minuscule in size compared to the levels of indebtedness that we have seen in in other um, developing countries. 
I'm speaking with Isabella Weber, author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, published by Routledge. China came close to embracing shock therapy a couple of times in the 1980s, um, but then they pulled back. What happened uh, in these uh, instances and why did they uh, come to their senses? <laughs> yeah, so as China um, was uh, starting to embark on this uh, reform journey, there were basically two things happening in parallel. On the one hand, um, the agricultural reforms were taking off pretty early on. Um, the agricultural reforms um, were a combination of bottom-up initiatives from rural um, uh, uh, leaders and, 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 and communes that um, wanted to experiment with new forms of organizing agricultural um, production, along with um, research that was conducted by, um, by group various groups, but in particular one group um, of, of researchers that had spent their um, youth in the countryside during the Cultural Revolution and then came back and continued to be dedicated to the question of ag agricultural um, reform and agricultural um, organization and were then um, charged by um, higher up leaders to help survey the experiments that were emerging in the countryside. And through this whole process, a group of reform intellectuals was emerging that were um, deeply versed in the agricultural reforms and that had a very hands-on approach to economic research that was based on, on survey research and trying to understand the local conditions, trying to understand how one could draw lessons from experiments and all of that. On the other hand, um, through these exchanges um, with, with Eastern European economists, but also increasing, increasingly, I mean, uh, economists from around the world, the economics profession itself was being reestablished. During the Cultural Revolution, the economics profession was basically on hold. Economists had been um, sent into, into uh, uh, re-education camps. Um, some of them had been sent into prisons. Some had been sent to the countryside more broadly. Um, but in any case, the, the centers of economic research were not intact when reform started. So they were just being re-established. Um, and uh, the economics profession was um, making up um, its mind about how to how to think about reform theoretically, why the agricultural reforms were already in full swing. Now, um, towards the mid-1980s, uh, the reforms moved from the countryside more and more into the urban industrial economy, where the question was, um, if you start from a price system that, as I, I've mentioned, was set up as a redistributive mechanism rather than as some sort of a quote-unquote rational price system that reflected individual values, how could you have um, individual actors in the system react to these um, price signals in some sort of a market fashion? The answer that these, uh, these uh, uh, academic economists were increasingly um, leaning towards was um, uh, the, the one that, that I've mentioned a couple of times already, which was um, to, to overhaul the price system more or less in one go. In some versions, this involved an intermediate step that would have uh, uh, required to first calculate all equilibrium prices, then adjust all prices, and then liberalize. But in any case, the idea was to overhaul the whole price system in, in one comprehensive reform. On the other hand, as a result of the dual track um, reforms in the in the countryside, where um, the responsibility for production was moved to the households, so that every household had to deliver their share in the planned quota, but beyond the quota could produce um, whatever they wanted for the market, so that you had one price that was the price um, of the plan output and another price, which was the price that emerged in the market as markets were being re-established um, as households were allowed to also produce for the market. As the agricultural economy was entering into this dual track system of plan and market at the same time, um, they, of course, people in the countryside also started to demand consumer goods, but also producer goods um, for, for the township and village enterprises that were starting to pop up all around the country. Now, what this meant for the urban industrial economy was that you basically had some sort of a demand-pull dynamic to create 
markets at the margins or to 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 have the socialist production units produce for the for the market once they had fulfilled their planned share so that this um, dual track system more or less endogenously um, moved into the urban industrial economy and was once more aided by economic research that surveyed and theorized these endogenously developing um, processes. So that by the mid-1980s, China had basically decided for the time being to pursue such a dual-track approach um, and to have this as its, as its reform policy. However, the dual-track um, approach was both gradualist in that sense, it didn't present a overnight solution for many of the problems. And it also created certain problems. Um, it, it, I mean, certain new problems. It, uh, it, uh, it created potential for corruption as officials were able to um, channel some of the most valuable materials um, into the market and charge much higher prices there. There were certain perverted incentives. Um, it also created very high prices um, for certain scarce materials on the market track, which um, created a certain general um, upward pressure on prices. Um, and, uh, and as reform was developing, um, it also became increasingly clear that marketization would also unleash certain social tensions. So that the idea of having a big bang um, or having a comprehensive price reform that was meant to be combined with wage and tax reform that would basically solve the challenge of creating a market economy in a non-market economy context, more or less overnight, became more and more attractive. So in 1986, um, Zhao Ziyang, who was really the most important leader in, um, in economic reform in the mid-1980s, takes the initiative to set up a so-called program office that was charged with um, with developing a plan that would basically design the steps that were needed for comprehensive price reform. While this is happening, um, a delegation of the Economic System Research Institute, which is the stronghold of those who think that the dual track system is the right way um, to go, is uh, going to Hungary and Yugoslavia to study um, attempts at very rapid price reforms in the Hungarian and Yugoslav context, since these ideas for radical price reform in China ultimately came from economists who came from the context of these Eastern European experiences. They wanted to know what is it that people on the ground in Yugoslavia and Hungary are saying about their attempts at reforms in the past decades. Um, ironically, this uh, delegation is, is, is uh, sponsored by George Soros. In any case, they sent back um, a telegram to Zhao Ziyang warning against um, such a rapid comprehensive price reform with the argument that um, this would have had the potential of unleashing um, hyperinflation or at least very high inflation, um, and thereby um, undermining the social and political and economic conditions that were required to um, pursue economic reform further without, however, solving the actual problem that China um, was facing, that is um, to come up with, with prices that would more closely reflect values than, than, than what they had. Um, the reason why they thought that there would be inflation was that the most upstream essential producer goods um, were priced very low under the old system. Now, if one was to liberalize these prices, um, so the argument goes, th th these upstream prices would be shooting up since they were by design too low to begin with. Um, so that um, as they are shooting up, the, these price increases would be handed down um, the, the, the value chain uh, until eventually um, consumer prices will be going up and workers will be demanding higher wages since the socialist production units were still socialist production units. Um, so that will be very difficult to impose wage um, repression so that eventually there will be a wage price um, spiral that did not adjust relative prices since all prices were just going up in step, but did um, create monetary and eventually also economic and political, um, I mean, larger economic and political 
turmoil. So this was kind of the warning message which led Zhao Ziyang to reverse his plan in 1986 and stop the attempt at comprehensive price reform then. These are, in retrospect, very wise decisions. It does seem like the Chinese have an almost German fear of inflation. Yeah, it is interesting that there is this shared fear of inflation. I've also been reflecting about that. It, I mean, in the Chinese context, I think it has a lot to do with the hyperinflationary experience in the 1940s that you had um, uh, brought up earlier, where basically one of obviously very crude, but still maybe not entirely wrong reading of the downfall of the nationalists is that ultimately um, their failure to bring hyperinflation under control was what made it um, impossible for them to, to win um, the, the civil war. So therefore, the political importance of hyperinflation was really, really enormous. Um, and uh, also we have to remember that um, during the Mao period, China had an enormous record of price stability, with some exceptions after the um, horrific um, famine. But overall, the, the price stability was astounding. So um, that uh, against that background of the experience of basically um, more or less completely flat prices, people would, of course, also have been particularly sensitive to price changes in the context of reform. Your book ends mostly with the 1980s. Where do you see China now? Is it in any sense socialist? Does the question even matter to the Chinese leadership at this point? Uh, and how much control does the state still have and how much has slipped away as uh, private actors have grown in wealth and power? I mean, the Chinese leadership is uh, very dedicated to reasserting at every <laughs> um, suitable occasion that it is uh, pursuing socialism and that it is a communist party, right? Whether one should therefore describe the Chinese economy as socialist is, of course, an altogether different um, question. And in the book, I'm trying to not foreground um, the question of labeling of whether it's capitalist or socialist, but I'm trying to trace a certain logic of state market um, relationships um, that I think is quite distinct in the way in which it is emerging in China and that has set China on a path towards a very distinct kind of economic model, whatever kind of label you then want to attach to it. And I think what is distinct about that model is that um, you have a deeply marketized economy where basically every rearm of the economy is um, um, governed through the market in one way or another. However, at the same time of this deep marketization, you have a very active and direct um, state participation in the economy, um, where basically the state has a, a whole range of institutions that enables it to steer and guide the economy, not only on the aggregate macro level, but on the level of specific um, commodities. So, for example, as I've been writing about in a short piece for Project Syndicate, now that the upward pressure on commodity prices is a, is a common challenge um, for, for, for most economies in the world, the debate in the United States has mainly been around um, if there is such an upward pressure for, um, for certain important prices, um, will, this, uh, will this mean that there will be such generalized inflationary pressure that one has to impose strict monetary policy um, and therefore basically risk the recovery, right? So, and then some people say, well, it's, it's not prudent to, um, to, to impose strict monetary policy. Others say, well, this is what we have to do. And some, some people say, well, we shouldn't be afraid of inflation at all, right? But all of this is basically thinking of um, monetary policy as the way to respond to inflationary pressures should they become so important that one should act. Um, and, and the answer to whether one should act or not depends on one's specific orientation. Now, in the Chinese context, um, what they have been doing is to, in a targeted fashion, try to contain the rises of specific prices 
that is, um, for example, important metals such as aluminium, steel, and so on. So the Chinese state has um, considerable reserves in these uh, important raw materials, which it has been releasing um, in order to um, counter the upward price pressure. But not only that, it can also ask the state-owned enterprises to not uh, engage in, in speculative price hikes and can um, also ask uh, state-owned enterprises to themselves um, exercise um, more general restraint and demand for these specific commodities. All of this long-winded um, explanation goes to say that the Chinese state has an institutional um, capacity that allows it to steer the market for specific goods, which um, resides in an attitude where we can read um, in announcements of the um, People's Bank of China that um, using monetary policy would be the means of last resort, since this would affect all sectors um, of the economy, and it would be much wiser to instead try to tackle the problem where it emerges, which is um, a, a logic of operation that is um, very different from the idea that the state should only be um, acting on the macro level, um, which is basically the dominant um, economic policy paradigm that we have been brought up under in, in, in recent decades. Well, this is Isabella Weber, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, the Market Reform Debate Just Out from Routledge. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of We Are All Bourgeois Now by the Marxist indie pop band McCarthy from 1989. Till next week, bye. <laughs>